Welcome back, everybody. It's Wednesday, and it's not raining, and it's not cold. Yes. Glad, glad y'all still braved all the traffic. There's a lot going on on Wednesday nights here, and so that's tough. But welcome back. Glad you're here. This is the beginning of our final topic for this semester. This is the beginning of the end. Um, maybe it's sad for you. Maybe not. It's all been heavy. We probably all need a break. But we're going to start talking about, hey, what are God's characteristics? What are God's attributes? We know his nature and his trinity, but what is he like? Like, What what is his character like? Um, The way that a lot of people will communicate this are what are his attributes. But real quick, just to review, last week we talked about, hey, what's the big implication of the trinity And it is that God is triune in his nature and at his very core is self-giving love. And because we're made in his image, your fullest life is found in self-giving sacrificial relationships in the community of Christ glorifying God. I know that's a lot. That's a mouthful. But your fullest life is in self-giving sacrificial relationships where you are giving yourself to others in love in the community of Christ, that you're brought together through what Christ has done to glorify God. This week we're going to start talking about these characteristics, and I'm going to start with what characteristics are God's alone. These are just what belong to God. When I say that, hey, we're made in God's image, these are some attributes that we do not have. We were not given these as a part of the image of God that these are black and white issues, these would be called God's incommunicable attributes, if you want to put a big word on it. God's incommunicable attributes. First one, diving right in, this is eternality. God is eternal. Now, this is going to kind of start stretching our brains a little bit, and it's going to get tricky because uh, the definition of that, when I say God's eternal, what I mean is he exists eternally endlessly forwards and backwards God exists endlessly forwards and backwards okay kind of the method of what I'm going to do when I have a attribute I'm going to give a meaning and then an implication what does this mean for God and then an application what does this mean for us so we can break down each one of these and see why they're important in our everyday lives but God exists eternally forwards and backwards. The implication for this is he is timeless and that is easier said than understood because all we, the only way I know how to talk about things is in time. I do this, then I do this, and there are steps. But God is not in time. I mean, I guess he's present, but he's also past, and he's also future. So here's what I want you to do to help you understand God's timelessness. I want you to draw a line on your paper. If you have some paper or something to write on, just draw a straight line. This line is going to be our timeline. Literally, it represents time. Okay? Once you've drawn your timeline, put a couple of tick marks that represent some major events. And you can title these events however you want. If you want to put your life story on these events, great. If you want to put American history, awesome. If you want to put today, what's happened so far today, great. And so, say maybe the first tick mark is your birth. It's not at the beginning of the line because there were some things before your birth. And then maybe when you accepted Christ and then you went to college. And then there's a little bit of a gap. So the first couple of those tick marks 
go ahead and put a couple of events that have happened up until the present moment. Like, we're moving along, moving along, and then here we are here. So these are all events that you know. Now, we can look back at the past, and we know what happened in the past, and we can describe it, and we know where we were. And so it's easy to say that God knows what happened in the past, because we understand that. We can relate to that. But for your next couple of tick marks moving on, I want you to put future events, things that may happen. We don't know if they will, but they may, and so maybe I'll get married, and maybe I'll have my first child or those two that I put up there. Maybe it will, maybe I won't, but those are potential future events. We have no idea what's going to happen in the future. But right there in the middle of your timeline is where you are now. You're stuck, and you're slowly moving left to right across that timeline. You'll make it there eventually, but you're not in the future. Now draw a circle above that line. And in the circle, write God. God is not rooted on the line. He's nowhere on the line. He's not in time. And you can draw an arrow to each and every event, past, present, and future, and God is at every single one. What's going to happen is not a mystery to God because he's not bound in time like we are. He's just as much in the future as he is in the past as he is in the present. See where this gets kind of tricky to understand? Let's look at some verses, see if that helps. Before the mountains were born or you brought forth the whole world, from everlasting to everlasting you are God. From everlasting past to everlasting future, God is God. In Revelation, he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the beginning and I am the end. But there is not, he's not in time. Time is not something that controls him. Um, if you think about it, time is just the measurement of things moving. That's kind of an easy way that physicists would understand time. It's just how things move. We kind of made it up with the numbers and everything. It's how we understand our world. But it's made up. It's, it's made up mostly by us, but it's a part of creation and God's outside of creation. So the application, let's just make this simple. Hey, what does this mean for us? It means God will never cease to be God. That as he is now, so he will be forever. He always has been and always will be. God will always be God. And there's never a time in your life when you have to worry that God will not be there or not still be who he is. That he is always there. That I feel like that is very reassuring and very comforting. That while the actual points about eternality are hard to get our minds around, it's very reassuring that he is eternal. Because we're not. And that goes right into this next one. God is immutable. And that is just a word that means unchanging. Maybe you may find it a lot easier just to write unchanging than immutable. But it just means God doesn't change. He is consistent. Always, whatever he was yesterday, he is today and he will be tomorrow. Implication, there's no uncertainty. There is no uncertainty with God. Now, why is that a big deal? 
Just shout something out if you have an answer. Why is it a big deal that we never have to be uncertain with God? Trust. Trust. Absolutely. That's huge. Trust with God. 2 Timothy 2.13, If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot disown himself. Has anyone in here ever been unfaithful to God in the covenant he's made with us? Yep, right here. But God remains faithful. And because he was faithful then, he's faithful now. He was faithful to Israel, he's faithful to the church, he's faithful to us. And he always will be faithful. Malachi 3.6, the Lord does not change. That's pretty blunt and simple. Uh, so you, the descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Now what I love about this is that the fact that God doesn't change means that he preserves his people. Like the implication of Malachi 3.6 is if God changed, his people would be destroyed. But he does not change, so his people are protected. Big application, God's promises will not fail. That whatever promise you see in Scripture, that, that's going to be upheld. God promises it, so he will do. I think I talked about this last week, but I'd love it if we could turn there. Ezekiel 16. We're going to just look at the last, I think it's four verses, verse 60 through 63. Let's see if I grab my Bible. There are a couple of places in the Bible where God tells his, the full story of Israel. Um, you'll find it also in, I think it's 2 Kings 17, I think, where it just kind of tells the whole story of Israel. But Ezekiel 16 is kind of written like a, uh, it, it's an analogy or, um, where Israel is related, is told of as a young woman, a bride of God, and it goes on to tell about how unfaithful she is to God. And it's, it's heart-wrenching. And you just see that Israel has been about as unfaithful as anyone could be. But there's these promises. There's this covenant that God's made with Abraham in Genesis 15. And then there's a covenant that's made with Noah. And then there's a covenant that's made with David in, uh, oh gosh, Second uh, Samuel 7, I think. There's these covenants, these promises that have been made from God to his people saying, hey, this is what I'm going to do for you. And look with me in, uh, let's start at verse 59. This is what the sovereign Lord says. I will deal with you as deserved because you have despised my oath by breaking the covenant. Yet I will remember the covenant I made with you in the days of your youth. And I will establish an, ever, an everlasting covenant with you. So the deal with a covenant as a legal agreement is when someone breaks it, broke, it. Whoa, when someone breaks it, it's done, and there's a there's a penalty. And God says, "Look, there's a penalty for your sin, but I'm still going to uphold the promise because I made it on my end." Verse sixty one. Then you will remember your ways and be ashamed, um, and you will see your sisters, both those who are older and those who are younger. I will give them to you as daughters, but not on the basis of my covenant with you. So I will establish my covenant with you, and then you will know I am the Lord. Then when I make atonement for you, for what you have done, you will remember 
and be ashamed and never open your mouth because of your humiliation. Now, what is he saying? Not only is he going to keep his covenant with these people, but he's going to make atonement for their sins. They don't have to do that on their own. This is really when he's talking about the new covenant in Christ, that how he makes atonement for his people's sins because they can't do it on their own, and he's going to uphold his promises. That even when his people were as unfaithful as you can imagine, he says, I'm going to keep my promises, and you know what? I'm going to make a new one that you can keep because it's not on the basis of what you do, but what I do. So when we're talking about God is unchanging and that his promises don't fail, man, that ought to lift your spirits and give you so much confidence in what God's doing. Okay, here's one of the omnis. You're going to see three omni attributes. First one is an omni is just a prefix that means all. God is all present. He's infinite, omnipresent. God is infinite. Well, Drew, you already said God is eternal. Well, yeah, infinite, being infinite is, a, is different than being eternal. Eternal, yes, it does mean kind of reference infinite time. But when I say infinite, I mean God has no bounds or limits. That as far as space goes, there's no way you can contain God physically. That even in the Old Testament, when the presence of the Lord rested on the ark, it was just his spirit. That in Acts 17, uh, when Paul's talking to the Athenians, he says, look, temples can't hold God because temples are made by human hands. God is bigger than your temples. He's, he's infinite. Um, implication, God is everywhere. Seriously, God is everywhere. God's not just in church. God's not just in America. God's not just uh, in this hemisphere. He is everywhere in the universe. He's huge. This might make some of us uncomfortable because um, I think sometimes we have a tendency to associate God with just where we are. But God is everywhere. But and while it may make you uncomfortable that God is huge in all places, it's very comforting to know the application that he's always with you. Always. There is a idea right now in the church that um, if God is with you, then there will be no hurt or pain present. And this, this has a problem that when there are pains and when there are hurts and when we do suffer, that somehow God's not there or God's abandoned us, right? But all through Scripture, all you see is even in the midst of pain, God is present and loves us. If you want to, I, I, we don't have time tonight to talk through the whole theology of suffering and pain and how um, God is in the midst of that. But no matter where you are or no matter how you're feeling, God is always present because he's infinite. He's all places and he cares. Great verse for this, Psalm 139, verses 7 through 12. David is having a hard time. He's in pain. He's hurting. Let's read this. Where can I go to escape your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I climb up to heaven, you are there. I think we'd agree with that. If you go to heaven, God's there. Tower of Babel, hey, let's build a tower up to heaven so we can be like God. Let's go up to heaven, God's there. If I lie down in the pit, 
Now, that's referencing a grave. The Hebrew word there is Sheol, which is also sometimes used for death or hell. That even no matter where I go, I could go down in death and you are there. If I fly away with the wings of the dawn and land beyond the sea, even there your hand would lead me. Your right hand would hold me fast. If I say, let darkness surround me, let the night around me be night, or light around me be night. So he's saying, look, the brightest thing around me was pitch black. And a lot of times when people are depressed, that's how they feel. There's just this darkness hanging over them. Um, Even in that darkness, even darkness like this is not too dark for you. The night is as clear as day. Darkness and light are the same. Really the implication, not the same in general, but the same to God. That there is no situation or place where God is not present. Now, I did say something that might have given you pause, um, and I, I thought of, I said God is in, uh, that shield's used for hell and God is there. Well, hell really is the absence of God's presence, um, the eternal absence of God's presence, which is initiated at, at a point in the future. Um, that the point here really is not that, uh, not hell, but in death, even in death, the where things end, and it's like the death being the epitome of pain. God is God is even there. All right, so those are those are not all of the attributes that God has alone. I'm kind of hitting the big ones, the highlights right now. But eternality, uh, omnipresence, unchangingness, those are qualities that God has that we are never told that we can attain. We're never encouraged to seek after those qualities or we don't have them innate in us as humans. Those are God's alone. He's set apart in that way. God is holy in that way. Holy just means set apart. But these next qualities, these are the ones that God says, hey, imitate these. Do these. First one is omniscience. Okay, it's kind of a controversial decision deciding to put omniscience in the qualities that we can imitate, the communicable attributes of God. Now, what do I mean by omniscience? Omniscience just means all-knowing. God knows everything. Now, can we be all-knowing? No. But there is a call to know, to seek understanding. And so whereas with the incommunicable attributes, I said, I'm going to give a meaning, an implication, and an application. I'll do that here too, but I'm going to add a call where God says, hey, do these things. Be like me in these things. And at the end of each one with your table, I think it'd be great if we just mapped out some practicals of what that looks like that as we're called to doing something, what does that actually look like in our everyday life for you? Now, you may only feel comfortable with sharing generalities with your table. That's fine. But if you're writing them down, put what specifically this looks like in your life. Because it's fine if we know these things, but it's better if we apply these things. It's actually best if we apply these things. Just knowing them 
doesn't doesn't help us much. And the call of Romans 12 is to don't conform to the ways of the world, but be transformed through the renewal of your mind. And present your life as a holy and pleasing sacrifice to God. That is your act of worship. So our transformation in our life is the ultimate act of worship. Um, so omniscience, meaning... God knows everything, both actual and possible. God knows everything, both actual and possible. So obviously, God is outside of time. He was all throughout the past. So he knows everything that happened. He knows everything that is happening. But he knows everything that will happen. And not only that, but everything that might possibly happen. You see the distinction there. All throughout the prophets, um, Isaiah 48, God says, Look, if you had returned to me, if you had cast off your wicked ways, then your blessing would be like a river. He says, If this had happened, this possibility... Then I would have done this, but you did not return, so I am going to do this. He knows what will happen is, and uh, what might have happened. Implication, God does not learn and does, is never surprised that what you do next is not going to surprise him. Think about how um, if you've been around a friend or if you have a child and you're watching that child and they do something that surprises you, it kind of takes you off guard. It's like, whoa, I didn't know that. Or you see a certain quality about someone that wasn't initially present on the surface. You learn more about someone. God's not like that. That's not to say he's not um, exciting or surprised. It kind of takes a little bit of the romanticism out of it. Um, but it, it means that whoever you are, I mean, whoever you really are, God knows. That if you try to present a certain version of yourself to other people, God knows who the real you is that's hiding. That there are no secret events with that you've done. There may be some things that only you know about in your life, but there's nothing that you and God don't know about. Thoughts, actions, all the above. Hebrews 4.13, And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him whom we must give an account. That everything that we do, think or know, that we have to give an account for it. That God does not look at man as we look at men, but God weighs, well, God looks at the heart of men. A great example of this in a biblical story is when Israel says, Hey, we want a king. God, we, we want to be like the nations around us, and we want a king. Now, it wasn't against the law to have a king. God said, hey, if you ever want, I, I want to be your king. I want to be your God. But if you have a king, here's some rules for him. He lays that out in Deuteronomy. They say, hey, we want a king. He says, okay. And he presents Saul. And Saul, it says, is a handsome man. He's about a head taller than everyone else. He's the kind of guy who, if you looked at, you'd say, yep, that's who we want. That's who we want to lead us. He looks like he, he, his looks fit the job. He's big, he's strong, he, he seems like he's a smart guy. That's who we want. 
But Saul was not the king that Israel needed. In fact, when God presents him, he's hiding behind some uh, baskets. And the people find him hiding and then bring him out and say, yeah, he's our king. You You quickly find out that Saul is a man who doesn't have a heart for God. He's got it all, all the looks right, but his heart just isn't there. And it hurts, it hurts Israel because they say, hey, this is how we're going to judge people. But God says, no, I'm going to judge people differently. And so when God says, hey, Saul, your time is up, you're done. And he sends the priest Samuel to go find the new king. Samuel shows up at this guy's house. Oh, gosh, of course, I'd forget his name. Um, Jesse. And Jesse's got all these sons lined up. And obviously, Samuel walks up to the oldest son and says, surely this is him. And God says, nope. He goes to the next son. Oh, this has got to be him. Nope. Goes through all the sons, and God said, he's not here. It's not him. And Jesse's like, well, you sent me to the house of Jesse. Uh, God, or Samuel said that. Why, where is he? Jesse, do you have any more sons? Yeah, we've got this younger son, but he's out. He's out with the sheep right now. You don't, you don't want to. There's nothing about him that's important. Jesse says, no, bring him here. And this little runt of the litter comes out, and God says, that's my man. Y'all know the story of David and Goliath. When he shows up and his brothers say, what are you doing here? And then he goes up to Saul and he says, this giant is cursing your name, God. Saul, I'm going to go out there and I'm going to meet him. And Saul laughs at him and says, but you're just a boy. He's judging by the outside of him. David's speech when he stands in front of Goliath, this nine-foot-tall Philistine whose spear weighs, oh gosh, it says uh, 30 shekels. I mean, that's a heavy, heavy spear. Goliath laughs at him and he says, look, you've come at me in armor with spear and with sword, but I come at you in the name of the Lord God who you have offended. So today, you're going to fall. Throws the rock, Done. We have such a tendency to look at the outside, but God looks at the inside, which is extremely encouraging in that he specifically made us all a certain way and has a purpose for each one of us. But also in all those ways that we've hidden our sins or been ashamed of ourselves, God sees right through us. That we're going to have to stand in front of him and give an account, like Hebrews 4.13 says. 1 John 3.20, For whenever our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our heart, and He knows everything. Last part of the verse, He knows everything. So this passage is talking about discouraged believers. Um, that when we feel like we're not good enough, there's something about us that is condemning us. God is greater than your heart, and He, say, he knows everything. He knows who you are. So, with your tables... Um, here I'll show this application none of your sin would be a surprise to God and cause him to cast you out so if God is not surprised by anything and he's chosen to redeem you through Christ none of your sin surprises him and would cause him to cast you out I know a lot of our fear in sin is that what would they do if they knew that blank dot 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 so Because God knows everything, 
Because he doesn't look at us the way that we look at each other. He's not surprised by anything we do. And there's nothing we've hidden that would cause him to cast us away. With your tables, what are some implications of that? Like, like what is that? You can just talk about, hey, this is how this encourages me. How does this, how does this inform how you should relate to God? Maybe, maybe pretty big and broad. I'm going to walk around a little bit to help direct that. But go ahead and turn in. Because God knows everything, then you should what? All right. Here, here's some other applications that might help your conversation. If God knows everything, then every warning of God exists because he knows of something that's worth warning about. And we will stand before an all-knowing God. So just to kind of help the conversation along a little bit. And all warnings are purposeful, and we will stand before God one day. So, sorry to interrupt. Take about one more minute. One more minute here. All right. So, some pretty big implications for, hey, God's all-knowing. What does that mean for us? Did anyone have some that are worth sharing? Or not worth sharing. I'm sure they're all worth sharing. But <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. That is, I need to ask for your forgiveness. That was rude. Is, are there any that you would like to share? They're all worth sharing. Yes. Yeah. So you're, you're asking if the, the judgment for sin different. Um, yeah. And we'll get to that when we're talking about wrath. God's wrath as it as the attribute, and so we will talk about. It. But that, yeah, um, that under the law you were judged. I mean, for all time. Let's start here. For all time, Genesis fifteen six. Abraham believed and was credited to him as righteous. That for all time that you have been made right before God by faith in God's promises. You're justified by faith in Him through His grace. The law was brought as a covenant between God and his people to say, hey, if you want to live exactly how you need to live to be perfect, this is, this is how you're going to be perfect. And so when Jesus shows up, on, and there are repercussions for breaking those sins, that's why the sacrificial system comes in where you have to make atonement for your sin by offering these sacrifices, um, and that judgment stands over those who have sinned. When Christ comes, he says, look, I'm not going, in Matthew five 17, I'm not going to do away with the law and the prophets, but I'm going to fulfill it. And so if you read Hebrews chapters uh, 7 through 10, Hebrews 7 through 10, it talks about how Christ fulfilled the role of the priests. He was the perfect sacrifice for all time, and he established the new covenant with us that because of what christ has done we no longer have to offer sacrifice for our atonement because it has been made in christ that all we have to do under this new covenant is by faith receive his grace that's where ephesians 2 8 9 comes in it's by faith through grace you have been saved not by works so that no man can boast it's the free gift of god um Romans six twenty or three twenty three. All men have, fall, have fallen, sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Okay, Romans six twenty three. 
For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So that because what Christ has done, uh, Romans 5, 8, now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That in the temple, the priest was continually making offerings both for himself and for his people because people were always sinning. The Hebrew says that uh, the covenant is a better covenant because they're, under the old one, it couldn't be kept. And it was always being broken and always had to be atoned for. But Christ, as the perfect sacrifice, fully, um, the, the entirety of God's wrath fell upon him. So that if you are under Christ, if he's covering you, that there's no wrath that comes down on you. That you are seen as clean and pure and um, you are continually being made holy by God. Now, are there repercussions for sin? Yes. If you sin, even if you're a Christian, there are repercussions for your sin. That wrongdoing demands justice. But there is not eternal condemnation for that because of what Christ has done. I know that's a long answer. But we're going to get we're going to talk about justice here in a second. We're going to talk about wrath. We're going to kind of hit all those points and break them down a little bit. And then if it's still something that's a little foggy, we can sit down and chat after this. But it's not that Christ took the Old Testament and kicked it to the curb. It's that what was fully intended by the Old Covenant was fulfilled in Jesus. That everything the Old Testament was talking about was a shadow pointing to Jesus that was made perfect in him. Okay. Oh, here we go. Back to, back, to, back to the call of omniscience. So you cannot be omniscient. You cannot be all-knowing. But you are called to know and to understand we are called to seek knowledge and understanding. And seek God's given wisdom. God knows all things. He's given us a particular, he's given us a, a revelation in our own words that we can read and understand every single day that's filled with wisdom for um, all things, Second uh, Timothy three sixteen. The word of God is beneficial. Um, oh gosh, I'm just going to turn there. Partially say that because I forgot what it says, uh, word for word. But um, let me find it. Here we go. Second uh, Timothy three sixteen. All Scripture is God breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training, and righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. That it is good for all situations, and knowing it will equip you for every good work. That while you may not be all knowing, you'll be fully equipped for what you do need to do. And that wisdom and understanding. Um, if you read Proverbs, the beginning of Proverbs, the, the book paints a picture of wisdom. Um, this is a book written by Solomon to his son. Wisdom is the most desirable woman, is how it says. She is the perfect wife for, for you, son, is how he's saying it. Um, that wisdom is the ultimate thing to be looked for. That as a young man, Solomon's son was probably trying to figure out 
um, hey, who am I going to find as a wife? He's a young man. His father has a lot of women around him. He's probably thinking about that. But his dad is saying, look, before you start thinking about relationships and women, you need to look for wisdom. Out in the open, wisdom calls aloud. She raises her voice in the public square. On top of the wall, she cries out at the city gate. She makes her speech. How long will you, who are simple, love your simple ways? How long will mockers delight in mockery and fools hate knowledge? Repent at my rebuke, then I will pour out my thoughts on you. I will make known to you my teachings. That wisdom is right right in front of you. She's not only right in front of you, screaming at you. Hey, pay attention. If you pay attention... I will give you all the, the understanding and knowledge that you need. That, that we don't have to look too far to find wisdom and knowledge. It's right in front of us, and God wants us to find it, and he's given it to us. So, omniscience. God is all-knowing. We should seek to know more than we know now or understand more, seek more wisdom. We have some capacity for that. For all of these attributes that I'm going to be talking about, you can think of it this way. God is the supreme example of that attribute. He's the perfect version, and we are some shadow of that beneath. That we can somewhat express them, but it will never be at the perfection that God does. That he will continually be our ultimate example for how to do those in the best way. Holiness. Now, God is holy. There is no one like him. Um, The word holy itself means set apart. In Isaiah 6, when Isaiah sees the throne room of God, there are these angels with six wings. With two they cover their face, with two they cover their feet, and with two they fly. And they say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Holy three times. Three is the number of completion. So perfect, completely holy. It's almost like they're grasping at the uh, edges of their language, that the only word that they know how to describe God is other, different, unique. You are totally separate. That there is this immensity in the word holy that doesn't just mean set apart, but means God is positively pure and distinct in all things. Now, what I mean by positively pure You know, sometimes when people say, hey, define pure, well, it's not dirty. It's not defiled. It's got no sin. We put it in a negative context, but purity is not just the absence of something. It's the presence of something. It's the presence of all virtue and goodness. It's this unblemished perfection. And he is positively pure and distinct in all things. Implication, there is no one like God. It's pretty simple. When you say God is holy, hey, all you're saying is there's no one like him. Here's Isaiah 6. In the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, and they called to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the sound of their voices... Shook the doorposts and the, or at the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the threshold shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Uh, if you want to see God's holiness, it is going to be a uh, terrifying picture. <laughs> that you're going to see the house in which He sits, 
and the angels around him, their voices are going to make it shake, and it's going to be unbelievably bright, and it's going to be filled with smoke. I mean, it would just overwhelm your senses to be in the presence of God, that you couldn't do it. You couldn't be there because he is so set apart and pure and holy. And and then going back to the um, infiniteness of God, the whole earth is full of his glory. And I love that first line, the king Uzziah died. At this time, Israel is having a succession of kings, and most of them are bad kings. And after a long time comes this guy, King Uzziah, and he's a good king. It's a guy that seeks to follow the Lord, and he's around for a while, and then he dies. And so the implication is, well, who's coming in next? Is it going to be someone? There's a lot of uncertainty, and I know we feel that a lot of times with the leadership. But even though there's not a king on the throne, the king is on the throne. And he's holy, and he's pure, and he is unlike anyone else. Application. God is separate from all sin and sinners unless a way can be found to make them holy. Dot, dot, dot. It's very purposeful. Dot, dot, dot. Purposeful ellipse. Now, uh, I, I said God is separate from all sin and sinners. I, I phrased that for, in a, for a particular reason, that there's this saying, God hates the sin but loves the sinner. And, that, and we hear that a lot. Um, and that sin is this thing that temporarily afflicts. Yes, God hates sin. There is no sin in God, but sin is not like a substance. You know, like evil's not like this thing that was made, but it's invisible and it just kind of afflicts us. That we are people who do sin. It's an action that we do apart from God. A sinner is not someone that just has this momentary affliction that kind of overpowers them. It's you are a sinner because your heart is apart from God, so you do that which is apart from God. That being a sinner is your identity is rooted in running away from God and doing that which offends him and hurts him. Sin is like, and God cannot do sin so he can he's separate from those actions but he also is separate from the people who do those actions because it characterizes them unless a way can be found to make those people righteous in his sight or holy so that they can be with him holiness makes us aware of our sin and our need for him Right after Isaiah sees God, he says, Woe is me because I am a man of unclean lips. This man's a prophet. He's the, vo- he's the mouthpiece of God to his people. And he says, I'm a man of unclean lips. Woe is me. First thing he says is, I am messed up. I can't do this because I'm sinful. And God has an angel grab a coal from the altar and come down and touch his lips with it and cleanses his sin and then god says who shall remember when we were talking about god as trinity we were saying that sometimes there's this plural god that shows up that who shall we send for us and who will represent us and after isaiah sees cleansed he says send me i'll go there's this pattern of you see god's holiness you recognize your sinfulness there's atonement and then you're sent 
It's a pattern we see in Matthew too. Right for the Great Commission, you will go, therefore go and make disciples in all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit after Christ's resurrection, after he comes into the world and shows us our sin. Okay, so here's the call. To be holy as God is holy. I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves and be holy because I am holy. Now, you will not be the perfection of purity. And um, you are unique in your humanity. That God made you unique. But there's not anyone in here, including myself, that you can look at and say, there's no one like them or ever was. There's some parts of my personality that other people have. Some people that may, I may look like. You know, there's, that as people, we're very much like each other. And we have more in common. I have more in common than any, with any human being on earth or whoever was on earth than I ever will with God. Does that make sense? Like, I, I am finite. I, I am sinful. There's all, I could make a laundry list of how I am like every human that's ever existed. But the list of how I could be like God is very slight. But God is calling, hey, look, be holy as I am holy. Be set apart. Seek to be pure. First Peter 1.15, But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all that you do. Be set apart. Be different. That the Old Testament law, the Levitical laws, the, in Deuteronomy, the new covenant uh, through Christ all of the call on the church is not just do these things arbitrarily. It's you are to be set apart because you are a people of a set apart God. Be holy as God is holy. Do your good works in front of all men so that they may see them and worship God who is in heaven. That if you are holy as God is holy, then people shouldn't be looking at you. They should be looking at him. So, coming to the end of holiness with your table or some practical tangible ways that you can be holy as God is holy let's put some let's put some legs on this what does this look like in your everyday life being holy as God is holy how can we seek after this attribute of God all right Running a little low on time, so I'm just gonna have to keep on keep on grooving here. All right, righteousness, justice. This is this is a more, I feel like, accessible one for us to say. Okay, righteousness, justice. I, I feel like I can be a just person. Granted, God is perfectly just. He is perfectly righteous, but righteousness seems to be a more attainable type of attribute of God that we can. Uh, grasp in our minds. When I say justice or righteousness, what I mean is God always does what is right. God always does what is right. That every action he does is not questioned because he always does what is right. That anything he chooses to do or says he will do is a just and right action. And I, I think when we say something like do the right thing, um, you know what what it is. You, you need to do the right thing. There's some subjectivity to that. Like we don't really know what might be right in any given situation. That's not a question in God's mind. He knows what is right because he's outside of time. He knows what could be or what will be. He knows what is the right 
course of action and what's just. That there's no, well, the ends justify the means. It doesn't matter what happens in between that. There is a just action and God's going to take it. Implication, God is our final authority on matters of justice and is our lawgiver. Have you ever thought about that, that all people have some idea of what is right and wrong? There's at least this like mental assent to there are some things that are right and there are some things that are wrong. Even if I'm saying, hey, what's right for you may not be right for me. At some point that breaks down and says, well, no, this is absolutely wrong. That there is some sort of law written on our hearts where we say there are some things that are absolutely wrong. And there are some things that are always good. That implies that there's some sort of law that's saying, hey, these are good actions and these are bad actions. The role of the law is to uphold justice and restrain evil. That you say, hey, these are the good things. We're going to support these things. And what's evil, we're going to hold it back and we're going to punish evil. So God's law should be our final authority for what is ultimately the best and what is ultimately just and that he is the one who gives us this idea of what is good and what is bad. Deuteronomy 32.4, he is the rock. His works are perfect and all his ways are just. A faithful God who does no wrong, upright and just is he. That is our God. He is the rock works are perfect all his ways are just that is awesome to follow god that who is like that it's not like the greek gods to where there are imperfections of them and they kind of look like bad versions of us it's not like pantheism this idea that god's everywhere because you can have a god who is great and he's infinite because he's all over the place but he struggles and he has problems and you can't really know him and he's impersonal and he's not just and right and there's some brokenness there it's not what we're saying that there is nothing wrong in him application our best actions are those that imitate god our best actions are those that imitate god a lot of times we're faced with decisions and if there are some things that in God's word, he's saying, hey, don't do this, do this. Those decisions are easy. Some of the hard decisions come when you're choosing between two good things. I'm not talking about those decisions where you say, hey, there's A and B, neither are sinful, both could be wise decisions. What do I choose? Um, I'm talking about decisions that it's saying, hey, God has pointed a clear path that his way is ultimately going to be the best way, even though it may look like the hardest way. Or the most painful way. So again, we don't know what that timeline has in the future. We ultimately don't know. We can speculate as to what might happen, but God's way will ultimately be the best. If you stop in on a Monday night and go down to Regeneration, our recovery ministry, you'll hear about people who were in the midst of some terrible stuff, whose lives were on the rocks. And they'll get up front and they say, I made a hard decision to follow God to where asking for forgiveness and seeking reconciliation with people would lead to bad things for me because there are consequences for the sin that I did. But ultimately, it's what finding reconciliation and forgiveness is God's way and it was the best way. God's law is perfect. Now, when you look through the Old Testament, there's nothing in there that you say this is not relevant anymore, this doesn't matter, or 
we're past this. If you've heard of a guy named Rob Bell, um, he's an insanely good communicator. He's a great communicator. He's a very clear communicator. Um, But he has this idea that there are some parts of God's law that we've kind of moved past, and we're in a new place now. Um, His most recent book is this idea that, hey, there's something, God's pulling us in a new direction, and there's some laws that have had their time, but mm, that's not for us anymore. Good thing that God is pulling us in the exact way our culture's going, and it's all okay. Um, But his law is perfect. Now, there's some, maybe some laws that are tougher to understand. Um, if you find any mold in your belongings, you should burn all your belongings. Remember we talked about this one, how to study Scripture. You said, hey, what did that mean for them? Well, there's no way if um, that spread through the camp, it could have killed thousands of people. That ultimately you were protecting many by sacrificing some of what you had. And God also made provision that those with more would support those with less. So even in laws like that where you say, that doesn't make sense, like I'm not going to burn my house if I find mold, you ultimately see that God's heart is he cares about his people and he wants to preserve them. And that law really points to more so, hey, you should care about others more than you care about your stuff and your things or yourself. So even the laws that are hard to understand, it doesn't mean that they're wrong. It's just that they might be tough to understand, but they are perfect. God's call in righteousness. Micah 6.8. This says it clearly. We're going to have to keep going. won't be able to do some table talk. He has shown you, O oh man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? What has he shown you that's good? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. That, that should pretty much sum up where you're aimed in life. Act justly, love mercy, walk humbly. Boom, boom, boom. That I'm seeking to do justice for the people around me. That justice is a good thing. That I'm going to walk humbly. I know who I am. God sees straight through me. He knows there's no sin of mine that he hasn't seen, but there's also no sin of mine that makes him run away. Yeah. And I'm going to walk humbly with him. Okay, here's, this, is gonna, this is a tough one. This is the one, wrath. God's wrath. This is the one that most people will kick out the door because it's difficult. God is a wrathful God. You may also hear that he is a jealous God. When I say God's a jealous God, I mean he doesn't like it when you go to other gods instead of him. Meaning God hates all sin. God is wrathful. He hates all sin. Implication, God stands against the sinful. He will destroy all sin. Grab some water really quick. Um, in the Psalms you will see and this goes back to what we were talking about with um, God hates the sin but loves the sinner God will point to the verses that show that God does care about all people and wishes all to come to repentance but when you read there's some there's a lot of Psalms actually when you read and it says that God hates sinners plainly I hate those who sin And that makes us stop. We're just like, hold on. Whoa, whoa. What do you mean by that? God is holy. He's separate from all sin. And he's just. Which means that sin, being an act against God, demands justice. 
And part of that is wrath. The wages of sin is death. In Ezekiel 18, Israel is accusing God of not being good because he is punishing sin. And he's saying, wait a second. Is it I'm the one who's doing wrong or are you doing wrong because you sin? Um, so how do we rectify this? This isn't just a church answer, but the cross. Absolutely. Does God hate sinners? Yes. Isaiah, in the Messianic uh, prophecies, God was pleased to crush him. That Does God hate sinners? Look at the cross. That's what we deserve. Does God love sinners? Look at the cross. That's what he was willing to give, to pay for us. Yes, God hates sin, and sin demands justice. But he paid that. When you see that God hates sinners, it shouldn't make you push him away, but it should make you stand in awe of what Christ did on the cross. That when you read the Psalms, don't let that stop you. Make it, make, that should make you look at Jesus and say, he took it. And God was pleased to do that so he could save a wretch like me. God demonstrates his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were running against him, away from him, he died for us. He came to us. I'm trying to remember where Jesus says it, but um, for a good man, some may die. And then, yeah, and then it says, um, but God demonstrates his own love for us while, while Christ died, or while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Wrath, don't don't push it away. Make make yourself look at the cross when you see it. Because that's where God's wrath was poured out so that God's love could be poured out on us. Zechariah 8.17 Do not plot evil against each other and do not love to swear falsely. I hate all of this, declares the Lord. He hates it when we sin against one another. Romans 1.18, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. The wrath of God is poured out on the godless and those who are doing wickedness because his justice demands it. I'm getting a lot of pop right now. Excuse me. John 3.36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. That through what Christ has done, there is no condemnation, but if you are not in Christ, then condemnation is still on you. Application, punishment is coming against all sin. Christ is the only appeasement for that wrath. That in Christ, he took that wrath so we wouldn't have to. The call there is to oppose all evil, injustice, and sin. To tell others about Christ. You're looking at someone walking towards a cliff. And the question is, do you tell them that there's death there? Or do you just let them go because what are they going to think about me? Wrath is coming. We don't know when. This isn't, I'm not trying to pull a scare tactic on you. But, 
If your life has been redeemed in Christ, you know the depths from which he has rescued you. And you know the value of the cross. So why on earth wouldn't we tell people about that? First, Second Peter 3.9, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promises, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but every, wanting everyone to come to repentance. Why, why is there still evil in the world? Why hasn't Christ come back? He should have come back by now. No, he is not slow as we think of slowness, but he's giving people time to repent and come to him because he is patient and he cares. He wants everyone to come to repentance. Okay. Omnipotence or sovereignty. This means God's all-powerful. We won't be all-powerful, but we have some shade of power and influence over our small individual realms, don't we? We can make decisions that influence the world around us. When I say God's all-powerful, I mean he is able to do all things in his holy will. Implication, there's nothing God sets out to do that he will not accomplish. So, can God create a rock so big that he can't pick it up? You know, have you heard a question like that? If God's all-powerful, can he do something that he can't do? Now, what, what you have here is a logical impossibility. Now, we have verses, is anything too hard for God? Well, nothing is too hard for God as long as it's, I mean, it's an actual thing. To say that there's a rock that's so big that God couldn't pick it up means that God has created something else that's infinite, something else that's like him, and there is no one like him. What happens when an immovable object uh, comes in contact with an unstoppable force? Well, those things don't exist. That's just not how. That's just not how creation works. That's God is able to do all things that are in His holy will. So, is there something God can't do? Yes, there is. He can't lie. Titus one two. He can't be tempted. James one thirteen. He can't deny himself. First Timothy two thirteen. He can't do that which contradicts his character. There's no sin in him. God cannot sin. He's constant and unchanging. He cannot lie. He's God. There's no one like him. He can't make something like him that challenges his sovereignty. It's a logical impossibility to say, is there a rock so big that God couldn't pick it up? It doesn't even, it doesn't even matter to the question of God's powerfulness. So he can do anything he sets out to do, um, in accordance with his sovereign will. Why would a purposeful God do an impurposeful, paradoxical, illogical thing? It doesn't line up with his character. It's ultimately a silly question. Um, He acts in accordance with his character and his purposes. Application, God's promises are assured. God promises it. He says, I'm going to do this. Nothing can stop him. He's going to do it. That means sin will be defeated. One day, Revelation 21, Christ will look back and say, Behold, I make all things new. So what is our call? God's omnipotent. How does he call us to be um, powerful? 
Our call is to use our slight power in accordance with God's will and character. Remember Joshua, choose this day whom you will serve. All of the commands of God are saying, hey, this is how I've made you. This is how I've created you. Line up with my will. I've made you. I've So this is the best way for you to live. Hey, know my son, because that's where my wrath has been appeased. That as it is in your power to act in accordance with God's will. In short, God is great and good. Those first ones, or actually all, all of these attributes, in their perfection, they're all great. But also, they are good. Lots of people have conceived of an internal, infinite God that is not good. Made up some God in our own minds who ultimately ends up looking like some version of us. But we're saying the God of the universe is great, but take heart, he's also good. God is great and good. Um, And with these last 10 minutes, I just want to talk about his names. We've talked a lot about who God is, but we've never talked about what he's called. And I think we learn a lot about God through how, what people have called God. The Old Testament, he's called Elohim. Elohim means God. It, it means a divine being, one who is feared, revered, and worshipped. That even pagan gods were called pagan Elohims. This is God out of the 2,000... 500 some odd times this word is used in the Old Testament. 2,100 are used of the God of Israel. Um, That means every time you see L, E-L, in a name in the Old Testament, somehow God is involved with their meaning. Ezekiel, one who believes in God. That L always means that God is part of their name. And so sometimes Elohim will just be shortened to L, as in El Shaddai, meaning the Almighty One. El Elyon, the Most High God. El Olam, the Everlasting God. El Roy, the God who sees. And these are all talking about how God is all-powerful. He's revered. He is one to be worshipped. He's sovereign. He's powerful. He's great. Next one, Adonai. means Lord or Master. Sometimes when people will walk up to each other in the Old Testament and say, Lord, um, that they are saying Adonai, that it refers to someone who is over someone else. And it always shows authority and power. This is the same in the New Testament. The word for Lord in New Testament is kurios. It just means someone who's over someone else. Yahweh. Now, this is, this is God's personal name. When Moses is confronted by God's presence in the burning bush, and God says, you're going to go for me to Pharaoh, and you're going to do all these great things, Moses said, what is your name so I can tell them who sent me? All the Egyptian gods had names. Uh, Seth, Anubis, Ra, they all have names. What's your name? And he says, Yahweh, which only means I am. It's not a name that you think... You would say, what's your name? I am. Well, okay, you are that, but what, who are you? I am. It's his fro- most frequent name. 
More often than not, this is what he's called, but it is a sacred name to people who are Orthodox Jews now, but back then too. They wouldn't write out the whole name. Um, it really shows God's changelessness. I am now, I, I was, I am, I will be. His presence, he is with you, and his commitment to his covenants. Whenever this is talking about God is a God of covenants, Yahweh is used. He's a God of who has come down and made a promise with man. Now, it was so sacred, they would take out all the consonants, and yod hey, yod is the Y. Yeah, vowels, thank you. Thank you. Um, yod, Y, hey, H, Vod, W, hey, H. Yod, hey, Vod, hey. That's how you might hear it said. And it's got a fun little rhythm to it. yod hey, Vod, hey. Um, Even now, Jews will not write out the full name of the Lord. They'll leave the O out. If they write God, they'll put a dash instead of the O. Um, if you come into contact with Orthodox Jews, be sensitive to this, that if you say this name, it will be offensive to them because it is the sacred name of God. And so what they would do is they would take the vowels of Adonai and put them with the consonants of Yahweh, and it would turn out to be Yahovah or Jehovah. That's where we get that word. It's the vowels of Adonai with the consonants of Yahweh. And so people will call God Jehovah. If you come in contact with Orthodox Jews, call him Jehovah. Um, Jehovah Jireh, the Lord will provide. In your Bibles, if a lot of times, uh, some translations will do this. If it says Lord and it's all capital letters, that means it is Yahweh, is the name that's there. It was not Adonai, it's Yahweh. So instead of putting Yahweh up here, I've put Jehovah. He is Jehovah Jireh, the Lord who will provide. He is Jehovah Nisi, which means the Lord is my banner. Jehovah Shalom, the Lord is peace. Remember how we said that peace is not just the absence of chaos, it is the presence of an overwhelming, comforting peace. It's like being underwater and saying, what's it like to be underwater? There's no air. No, there are, there's a lot there. It is the presence of a peace. Jehovah Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts, King of kings, Lord of lords. Jehovah Makadeshim. Don't have to spell that. Don't worry about Makadeshim. Um, that means the Lord who sanctifies you. Sanctification is not just a New Testament idea that God is intent on making you pure. It's an Old Testament idea as well. He's Jehovah Roy. El Roy means the God who sees Jehovah Roy. The Lord is my shepherd. He's the one who watches over you and guides you. Jehovah Tsekundi, the Lord, our righteousness. God is our righteousness. We are not righteous on our own. It is he who is righteous and has given that righteousness to us. Jehovah Shema, the Lord who is there. That's awesome. He's the God who is there. He's not absent. He's not gone. When Elijah is on Mount Carmel with the prophets of Baal, there's hundreds of them. And they are making sounds. They're playing instruments, banging gongs, and their God's not showing up. He's not coming, bringing fire down from heaven to light their altar. And Elijah says, maybe you should scream louder. Maybe he's gone. Maybe he's sleeping. You can't hear him. And then Elijah walks up to the altar and it's dry, and he says, soak it in water three times. I think it's three. 
just dumps tons of water around it until there's a puddle, standing puddle around the altar. He prays to God once. He doesn't run around screaming, prays to God, and fire comes down and engulfs the whole altar. He's the God who is there. He is present. Jehovah Elohim Yisrael, the Lord God of Israel. He is the Lord Yahweh. He is Elohim God of Israel. Those are his people. He's the God of his people. In the New Testament, we've got Kyrios, which means the same as Lord Adonai. Theos is the one you'll see a lot. It means God. Um, it's the equivalent of Elohim. It's kind of this catch-all God that we use today. When we say God, it might refer to all kinds of things. Kind of, when people say, I believe in God, you've really got to ask them, what do you mean by that? But every time it's used, it's meant he, this is the one true God. He is unique. He is transcendent. I mean, he is beyond all things. He transcends every everything you would use to categorize and hold God. He's not, um, like I said earlier, Acts 17, the God who just sits in your temple. He is beyond that. And he is Savior. Theos is Savior. The big one used in the New Testament is Father. That is the one most often used. And our, our temptation here is to think of our earthly fathers, good or ill, and say that God is like them. Which isn't true. It might be to an extent. There's some attributes that were positive. You may have seen that were in your fathers that they were seeking at... If, they, they were like gods. Those attributes where God is the perfection and they are a lesser shade. Your father may have left some scars and some pain. Don't attribute that to God as father. When I say God's father, I say he is the ultimate perfection of what a father should be. That earthly fathers should aspire to be like. It's only used 15 times in the Old Testament. 245 in the new. I'm sure you've seen the space difference in the Old and New Testament. How many more words are there? Um, Sorry, this is a bad illustration because there's a pause. Okay. This is the Old Testament. This is the new. And how many times more is Father used in the New Testament than the Old? They are punching away, God is your father, God is your father, God is your father. Hitting it all the time. He's the one who gives grace and peace. All good gifts come from him. Everything good that has come to you or anyone else around you has ultimately come from God the Father. Um, uh, If God your father knows how to good, if your fathers on earth know how to give good gifts, how much more will your father in heaven give you good gifts? Um, and it's really it's how we address him in prayer. Remember when we talked about that in Matthew 6? Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. It's how we address God as our Father. So if we put this all together, all the attributes and the names, I would just say God is our Father in heaven who is great and good. Tell me who God is. He is our Father in heaven who is great and good. What is he like? He is three in one, and that will blow every single um, fuse your mind has 
first in intellect and then in what that means for your life, like your Richter scale of what beauty is like will just be destroyed when you figure that out. That this is, while it's brief, there's a lot there. God is our Father who is great and good. Next week, we'll talk about because he's our Father who is great and good, how should we respond to him? When we're talking about prayer and worship. And really, I think that's one of the main reasons people leave churches is worship, music, and uh, maybe how people pray. And so we're going to talk about, hey, what does the Bible say about worship and prayer? And how do we do these things? So that'll be next week, our final week. It's 8.30. Thanks for coming. I'm going to pray, and then I'll let you all get out of here. Oh, Father, thank you so much for who you are. We praise you not because of what you have done for us, but because of who you are, that you are the eternal, infinite, unchanging, holy, just, good God who demands punishment for sin, but did not leave us to pay that penalty, but gave your Son so that he would bear the wrath for us. Father, thank you that we can come to a place and search out your wisdom and your knowledge and seek to be more like you, or be made more in the image of your Son every day. Thank you for your Spirit who gives us the power to act in in ways that you find good. Thank you for your spirit who guides us in your word. We pray all this in your son's name by the power of your spirit. Amen. All right.